The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. I think Danny went to grab food and didn't get to hear the applause for Better Off Red. <laughs> oh, you're there. Oh, oh and Eric. <laughs> Excellent. Um, that was very nice. So um, just a disclaimer at first that uh, you guys are going to get to hear me thinking out loud a little bit um, about some of these questions and that this is not necessarily a fully formed answer to the question um, of what makes workers fight, but really um, a series of ideas and provisional theses and questions that I am uh, working through. So I wanted to start, there was a meeting I believe this morning about 1968 in France where an occupation of students of the um, university system in France gave rise to um, incredible mass strikes in a revolutionary situation um, or pre-revolutionary situation throughout France. Um, in 2011, uh, in Egypt, a million workers, a million people uh, filled the squares of Tahrir Square um, and brought down the dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak, who had ruled um, unchallenged for decades. Um, and then there were the occupations, this is smaller than the Egyptian Revolution, um, but nonetheless important, the occupations of the Madison Capitol building here um, in the United States, and then Occupy, which was really, I think, the opening wave of rebuilding a left in this country and the idea of class politics emerging to the fore. Um, and then just in the last few months, in the spring of 2018, we have seen a series of teachers' rebellions in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, Kentucky, North Carolina, Puerto Rico, um, that really like, I think took all of us by surprise in a certain kind of way um, in terms of re-bringing the question of working class struggle um, back onto the American map. And these were all very unique and specific events, but they have one thing in common, um, which is that no one really predicted them. They were eruptions of struggle that emerged seemingly um, out of nowhere. And I think that to understand what's the backdrop to that and how can you go from a period of what's like relative calm um, or relative lack of struggle to one where suddenly you see these big struggles um, take place, I think is part of the question that we need to grapple with. Um, and there was a British Marxist named Tony Cliff um, who wrote a piece about a year after the events in May 68 in France who actually tried to grapple with this question in that context and he wrote this. For decades, Marxists used to infer the state of mass consciousness from a few institutional barometers, membership of organizations, readership of papers, etc. The deep alienation of workers from traditional organizations smashed all such barometers to pieces. This explains why there was no way of detecting the imminence of the upheaval in May 1968. And also, more important, it explains the extreme explosive nature of the events. The concept of apathy is not a static concept. At a certain stage of development, when the path of individual reforms is being narrowed or closed, apathy can transform into its opposite, swift mass action. However, this new turn comes as an outgrowth of a previous stage, the epilogue and the prologue combined. Workers who have lost their loyalty to traditional organizations, which have found themselves to be which have shown themselves to be paralyzed over the years, are forced into extreme explosive struggles on their own. 
Now, that was him writing in 1969 about the, exam about the events in France, but I think there are a number of parallels um, to the situation um, that preceded the Red State Rebellion um, of teachers in this country. Um, and I want to talk about what those are as I go through this. Now, the causes for sort of what, what's described as apathy or quiet are really vastly different um, in the two contexts I'm talking about, 1968 and 2018. In 1968, the struggle was coming on the heels of an expanding capitalist system that was able to grant reforms without struggle. Um, across the sort of advanced Western capitalist world, um, workers were able to have health care, have a measure of reforms, to see consistent wage increases. This was uneven, of course, across the board. Um, it did not make you know, the United States a paradise, as the civil rights movement um, is a testament to. But it did mean that workers were able to see their living conditions rise, to have a measure of stability in their lives without having to fight for it, without having to struggle for it. The system was able to grant that in some kind of way. Um, and that gave rise to the kind of passivity and apathy um, that people were talking about that led many socialists and radicals of the time to actually give up on the radical potential of the working class, um, which obviously you know, was smashed to pieces in 1968. Um, but today, the backdrop to the passivity and apathy, far from being um, rising living standards won without struggle, is a context of low class struggle where you have a one-sided class war being waged by the bosses in which people have seen their living standards decline. They don't see that they have a future for themselves. Union organizations have been smashed to pieces. The left um, has, you know, the left was smashed to pieces. The collapse of Stalinism meant that any even kind of institutional opposition, however limited, um, also was was marginalized or sidelined. And so that's a very, very different context, right? That's an apathy that's built on a level of like bitterness and despair and anger and alienation. Um, and I think that's the backdrop to what I want to talk about today because 2016, um, when I wrote that down, I was like, wow, it's 2018 now, I can't believe we've been living in this for almost two years. But 2016 was really a year of shocks um, to the political system, to our side, I mean, to people in this country in general. Um, and you had a number of phenomenon. You had uh, the meteoric rise of Donald Trump to political prominence, which, I mean, I think at the beginning of Donald Trump's campaign, it's safe to say that no one predicted that he would become president of the United States. Um, he was belittled by the media. He was he was treated as, you know, some kind of like sideshow circus. Um, but he was able to squash every Republican competitor um, and really draw on a right-wing base um, and fill fill really a vacuum um, that existed in this society that could provide right-wing alternatives to the anger and bitterness that people were feeling and that also spoke to the deep alienation from the political system. Now, Donald Trump was not the only surprise phenomenon of 2016. On the other side, there was the surprise phenomenon of Bernie Sanders, um, who won 11 million or 13 million, I can't remember if it's 11 or 13, but millions of votes as an open, um, self-described socialists running in the Democratic primaries for president against Hillary Clinton. This 
also was a shock to the system. Like, I don't think that maybe they thought he was like quite the sideshow person that Donald Trump was, but the idea that this, you know, that Bernie Sanders could suddenly popularize the ideas of socialism, that he could begin to win primaries, that he could come, you know, within a hair's breadth, really, of defeating Hillary Clinton in the primaries was a shock to the establishment. It was a shock to the Democratic Party, um, and it began to open up new ideas of what was possible. Um, in this country. Um, and so this led, you know, the media and the political establishment and I think everyone really to grapple with how did we not see this coming. And I think there's two aspects to what happened. One um, is a rejection of the status quo um, that had an expression that was a right-wing expression with Donald Trump and a left-wing expression with Bernie Sanders. So sort of a rejection of the status quo and a going to the polls to express that. Um, the other part of it, though, that's equally important to understand is that there were millions of people who sat it out entirely. Um, and, you know, for the last several decades, we've had declining voter participation rates. Um, and, but even more so, you saw millions of votes actually fall out from the Democratic Party base and people just did not turn out. And I think when you talk about the sort of alienation from traditional organizations, institutions, barometers that can measure working class consciousness, um, that's really important because if, if your only barometer is the election, who's elected, you're like, okay, Sanders gave it a good run, so clearly there's a left-wing sentiment, but there's also, you know, a right-wing, uh, what's the word, mandate in this country, and that those are sort of the, you know, those are kind of the options, and so it leads to these very simplistic um, understandings and debates that just go on and on and on and on. Um, but if anyone has, oh, people are taking notes. I don't want to make you take out your phone. Um, well, if you want to take out your phone, I'll describe this. If you don't want to take it out, you don't have to. But if you go to bit.ly um, backslash apathy map us with apathy and map capitalized, there's a map called the United States of Apathy that this cartographer made. Um, and what he did is he did a county level breakdown of if um, non-voters were counted as voting for none of the above, um, where would none of the above have be beaten um, both Trump and Clinton? Um, and you know, none of the above would have won the election decisively. Um, and it shows up if you look if you look at it on your phone. You can go to it later. Um, it shows up as like this kind of ring of black. That's that's how they denoted the sort of apathetic or the non-voters. Um, and you look at this ring of black, and you follow that down, and it's like West Virginia, um, Kentucky. Oklahoma, Arizona, literally, those are some of the places where the rates of non-voter participation were the greatest. So it's where you had the deepest sort of alienation from the system that we've also seen some of the first expressions um, of working class struggle. Okay, great, wow, that's it, okay. Um, so um, I'll come back to that, but I think that all of these different phenomenon in 2016 were different reflections um, of a single phenomenon, which is the bitterness, the deep alienation from political institutions, the total lack of confidence in the traditional parties, a sense that the world is spinning out of control. I think there's also, there's a concept in Marxism called quantitative and qualitative, the sort of quantitative sense that there's no future for your children or that there's no future for you, I think has become qualitative um, in the last several years following the economic crisis, but then a recovery that has led to the most massive inequality. We 
We're the third most unequal advanced economy in the world where all of the recovery profits have gone to the very wealthy and people have continued to see their living standards decline. And, and there's a stability to that. Um, and unemployment and sort of like the the picture of despair is not out there in the same kind of way. It's almost an internalized despair that people have, but the questions of student debt, the questions of not being able to afford housing, the questions of healthcare, and you just go down and down the list, um, and there's a very deep sense of despair. And now the whole period we've come through in the last 45 years is the longest year period in US history without an upturn in struggle. Um, without a mass resurgence of the left and without a revival of class struggle. Um, I've been an active socialist for 26 of those years and it hasn't been easy. Um, and it's really wonderful to see that it might be beginning um, to change, but it made many people lose confidence in the idea of whether workers will ever fight. Um, I remember debates you know, uh, prior to the last five years where people would say, it's been 20 years, we've never had such a sustained period without a rise in class struggle. It's been 30 years, we've never had such a long period without a rise in class struggle. It's been 40 years, we've never had such a long period without a revival of class struggle. And it makes people, it makes people question the entire project of socialism because the entire project of socialism is the self-emancipation of the working class. And so how do you hang on to that when it seems like that's not happening um, around you? And I think that there's a number of reasons or indicators that we can point to um, about why that is. I mean, one is obviously just the whole period of neoliberalism was one um, that really created a vice grip um, on the working class and the left. The process of defeat, what it looked like for the bastions of the last waves of struggle, you know, the last waves of industrialized unionization for auto workers to go from jobs that pay $30 an hour to jobs that pay $12 an hour, for auto plants to move from Detroit to Alabama um, and have, you know, safety ratings that are off the charts, horrific, horrific um, conditions, and to try to then organize that while also facing the historic legacy of racism in the South and the division of black and white workers um, against one another. That, that sort of process of defeat, it's not just the results of that defeat, but it's what was entailed in making that happen. Getting people to accept two-tier wage scales, which automatically breaks up solidarity um, and begins to atomize people um, from one another. Um, you know, just the threat of job, you know, the threat, and oftentimes it's a threat, but like the threat of jobs going overseas or being lifted out of your community and whole communities being left behind with nothing. Um, what it looks like when Walmart is the only employer and the only store within 50 miles or 100 miles, and then that Walmart decides to close down and what that does to um, a community. I mean, I, I wasn't able to be at the meeting on the opioid epidemic last night, but I think that that gives you a, pick, a sense of what the social cost, what the human toll um, um, of that is, and that leads to a degree of atomization. If unions are in decline, like unions historically are one of the things that cuts against racism, that cuts against the divisions in the working class. Not automatically at all, but it's one of um, the measures. When you don't have that, you have a degree of atomization. When you have Walmarts pulling out of areas, when you have jobs pulling out of areas, when you have people who are living you know, in communities where their access to news is Fox News, and you know what I mean? That is literally the 
the surround sound, you know what I mean? All day is Glenn Beck railing against immigrants. That kind of atomization. Um, the breakup of collective institutions, which I think I already kind of talked about, but the breakup of the left, the breakup of unions. Um, and then neoliberalism thrived on the ideology of individualism. So at the same time as all of this was happening, as people were seeing their living standards decline, as you had more and more people living in poverty, this was the same period in which you had welfare reform, right? And the end of quote, the quote unquote end of welfare as we know it, where individuals were blamed for the fact that they can't lift themselves out of poverty. This is the whole period in which the whole questions of structural racism were redefined to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or you know pull up your pants or the kinds of like racist narratives um, and culture of poverty narratives um, that took over. And so all of those things combined together created the, the sort of political sea in which we were swimming. Um, and I think that you know there's a number of ways that you can measure that, but I'm actually going to skip over the measures of apathy because I think you guys kind of get the point. Um, <laughs> but you know there has been like a decline in voter turnout, decline in union membership, a sense of estrangement from the political system. Um, just to give an example of that, like a majority of people, and this was as recently as 2012, think that politics is too complicated for a person like me to understand. Um, 48% say people like me don't have a say in what government does. Over 60% say government officials don't care what people like me think. Now, imagine living, uh, not don't imagine, you do live. <laughs> You're living in a society, right, which is supposed to be a democracy, right, which is supposed to be built on participation, this idea that you vote and you have an influence and you have a choice and what you do matters. And like a majority of people don't think that what they do matters when it comes to voting. And the reality is they're probably right. Um, and that's a, that's a real, you know, that's a real barrier. And it has to be said that the ruling class wants it this way. Both parties rely on the passivity of the vast majority. They assemble their interest groups and they engineer results behind closed doors with lobbies, armies of consultants and lobbyists. Um, but, this is where we start to get to the good point, um, the elections of 2016 produced another phenomenon that seemed also to emerge out of nowhere, which is mass resistance to Trump. Um, really mass resistance. Um, the growth of the left, the entrance of tens of thousands of people into political life in one way or the other. Um, and that, that is a remarkably new phenomenon. The fact that there is a socialist group, the Democratic Socialists of America, um, that has a membership, at least on paper, of over 40,000 members is different than what existed before, right? <laughs> I mean, that maybe is an obvious. The fact that there are politicians who run as socialists and talk about socialism and are on, you know, the Colbert Show and are on Meet the Press and, you know, I live in New York City and the Daily News is the tabloid and the executive director of DSA wrote a whole thing about how socialists are just getting started talking about socialism that was like in the you know second largest tabloid um, in New York City. That is a new factor. Um, you know, revolutionary groups like ours, the International Socialist Organization, have grown. There have been new independent socialist organizations that have come on to the scene. And we've had, you know, more demonstrations in the last year and a half. More people have participated in protests than any other time in U.S. history. I mean, that's just a shocking statistic. Like, more people than during the Vietnam War have protested um, in the last year and a half. 20% of people who were polled in April said that they had participated in a protest sometime since um, Donald Trump's election. That's one in five. 
um, which is really just a stunning phenomenon. Um, but I also want to say that the reason that this could happen, this didn't just happen out of the blue, um, but this could happen because of some important developments that came before. And there's an important continuity with struggles that preceded um, the period um, after Trump. And I want to just talk about a couple of them. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, Occupy. Um, how many people know what Occupy? I'm just thinking it's like, OK. All right. Um, I mean, it was a really huge deal when it happened. <laughs> um, I mean, Occupy was like really like I remember Occupy Wall Street when you know people first went out. Will sitting in the audience, he was one of the first people who was out there. Was part of the planning meetings for Occupy Wall Street, and it was like a hundred people, you know, with sleeping bags, trying to see if they could hold an encampment for a week. Um, and what happened was it became a spontaneous center of gravity for working class people who streamed down there um, and connected politically for the first time. And it gave voice. I think it was the beginning of this phenomenon. It gave voice. Um, to the anger that people were feeling over their economic conditions, the sense of youth despair, and it attracted people, and then it proliferated and it spread. Um, and within two months, it was gone. Um, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned there that are not part of this talk. Um, but it left a lasting residue, right? The question of the 1% and the 99%, economic inequality, the idea that you, you go out and protest when things happen, that you can take space, that you can do something, that you can rebel. All of those things were a new phenomenon produced um, by Occupy. I think another important sort of marker in the period before you know, this last one since Donald Trump's election um, was the rise of Black Lives Matter, um, and particularly starting after Ferguson um, and the police murder of Michael Brown. And it's worth saying that Ferguson was also, you know, in a way that I think is similar to the, the teachers' rebellions, a very important sort of upsurge of spontaneous working class rebellion that emerges out of a sort of situation of despair and a feeling that you cannot take anymore. Um, OK, great. And it was, um, yeah, and it wasn't just a protest, right? It was an entire city that was in rebellion. Um, and there's another British uh, socialist called Chris Harmon um, who wrote something about a series of, of, of riots that took place in Brixton in, in Britain um, that gets at some of this dynamic. He says, those without hope are capable suddenly, virtually out of nowhere, of shifting from apathy to anger. And that anger can break through all the restraints that education within capitalist society is supposed to build into people's consciousness. The local streets suddenly take on the aspect of a revolutionary battleground with barricades and burning cars and instant solidarity against the state. And for people who went to Ferguson, I think they got to see that close up. For those who didn't go to Ferguson, I think we all saw it on the television. And that self-activity of the black population of Ferguson left an indelible mark. It helped produce the Black Lives Matter movement, but it also helped to shift consciousness. It helped to bring the question of racism to the foreground. It helped to bring the question um, of the brutality of the US state and the, the centrality of racism to that into mass consciousness that broke through everything I was talking about before, about the sort of individual neoliberal narratives um, about racism, and I think is, is an indispensable element of understanding the radicalization that's taking place today. Um, and that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I thought, I think you began to see 
the beginnings of a new left in that period as well. You did begin to see socialism become more popular. You did begin to see people look for socialist, you know, organization less, but like the ideas of socialism, the fact that like 30%, uh, I think it's 30% um, of people of millennials saying that they would prefer socialism to capitalism, that sort of ferment. Um, and that's the backdrop to everything that happened. And then the Sanders campaign really, um, gave voice to that. And then I have written here, apathy, quote, sense of collective hope. Um, I think that what that quote was about, um, which I didn't paste in, is the idea that like apathy can turn into its opposite as soon as people have a sense of collective hope. Not just the despair and the bitterness, but the idea that you can do something about it. Like for decades, the idea was, Tina, there is no alternative. That was Thatcher's you know, slogan. Um, and it was the hallmark of neoliberalism. You know. And now there's an idea like, maybe if I take action, I can do something. Um, and I think that we've begun to see those signs of collective hope in the last year and a half. Um, the women's marches with millions of people coming out into the streets. You have a misogynist in the White House, but then you have women coming out in numbers that we haven't seen before. The airport protests against the initial Muslim ban where people just kind of spontaneously, I mean, not totally spontaneously, someone said come to the airports, but people flooded to the airports for those protests. Um, you know, now the protests against Trump's policy at the border, which have been just like, you know, just when you're starting to succumb to despair, like, people protest again and remind you that this guy is not invincible. Um, or an issue that's been near and dear to my heart in the last year, the sort of rise of Me Too, which isn't exactly a movement, but it is it is affecting profoundly consciousness um, around, of us, around us. And all of this forms the backdrop to the Teachers' Rebellion, which is the first generalized expression of a rise in class struggle in this country in decades, and begins to answer the question of what makes workers fight. Um, and I think the teachers' rebellion is different from these other struggles in an important way, which is the centrality of working class self-activity to change in society. That protests are incredibly important for shifting and changing consciousness. They can win individual reforms. Um, but when you talk about where the power, sorry, <laughs> where the power lies in society to change things, the role that the working class can play is unique. And it's not just the power; it's also the ability for the working class. Like being on the front lines, all of these social issues are there in the workplace. Me Too is there in the workplace. Black Lives Matter is there in the workplace. Immigration is there in the workplace. Poverty and desperation, the opioid epidemic, they are all there in the workplace. And so when workers begin to resist and fight, it doesn't just raise the question of do you get a raise? It doesn't just raise the question of what's happening in your workplace, but it begins to raise all of the questions um, of society. Um, and I think that's really important. And we couldn't have predicted where or when, but the conditions have been overripe for quite some time. And after more than 40 years of retreat, we're seeing the first signs of class struggle. And this allows us to begin to draw some lessons, and it re-raises new questions. How will a left be built? What role do socialists play? How do we build the connective tissues between these episodic struggles and begin to translate them into a sustainable um, opposition? So. This is the part where I'm thinking out loud. Um, so, okay, great. Um, I want to say a couple of things about that. One, um, I've been in the International Socialist Organization for a while, um, and there was a time, and there was a time when we were sort of accused of having something, and maybe some people did, um, having something called a quote-unquote Big Bang theory of struggle. 
Um, now, this idea, um, in brief, was the idea that, like, you know, there's long periods of calm, and then there will be a big struggle. The big struggle will emerge, and if we have built a revolutionary organization in advance, we'll merge with that big struggle, and then onward and upward, and, you know, follow the logic down the line. Um, now, obviously, there are some real problems with that, because we've seen that you can have these big explosions of struggle. It's not that there haven't been individual explosions of struggle over the last 40 years. There was the LA Rebellion, there was the Global Justice Movement, there was the Anti-War Movement. There have been a number of big bangs that have not yet led to a breakthrough for the left and a breakthrough for the revolutionary left. Um, and so you have to reject a sort of that sort of schema of how we think about things. Um, but I also think there's an element of truth to it that we have to understand as well, which is that explosive nature of struggle and the ways in which the periods in which the left can advance, in which working class struggle can advance, in which our side can seize the initiative, tend to be concentrated in relatively short periods of time and tend to be um, made possible by things that are beyond the control of the organized left or of organized forces. And this really has to do with the ways in which capitalism operates to maintain a relative stability um, and what the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky called the psychology of the masses. Um, while Marx was right to describe history as a history of class struggles, now open, now hidden, it's also the case that this conflict must somehow be controlled and mediated. For the ruling class, it's necessary to maintain some degree of social stability, but for the working class and oppressed, it would be impossible, indeed intolerable, to live in a state of constant revolt against the existing order. I mean, I'm sure you can all identify with this, right? Like, if you can't read your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed or whatever feed you read, um, or the news, um, if you still read the news, you can't read those things and see what's happening in Gaza and see what's, you know, see all these injustices that are taking place and go out and protest every day. You still have to feed your kids. You still have to go to work. You still have to go to school. And so how do you kind of survive that? Um, and so for most of the people, most of the time, discontent or opposition is contained. Um, and people can attempt to channel or deflect their frustrations made um, by means made available to them under the existing conditions. Um, but the contradictions and injustices of our system sew themselves into the fabric of the collective unconscious. They accumulate, and at a certain point, they become no longer tolerable. And a crack pried open in the edifice of the system becomes a yawning chasm that opens up to the widest horizons. Um, and that's what gives struggle its explosive, dramatic quality. Um, and I'm not going to quote Trotsky in full, only briefly. But he says that um, uh, the swift changes of mass views and moods in an epoch of revolution thus derive not from the flexibility and mobility of man's mind, but just the opposite, from its deep conservatism. The chronic lag of ideas and relations behind new objective conditions right up to the moment when the latter crash over people in the form of a catastrophe is what creates in a period of revolution that leaping movement of ideas and passions, which seem to the police mind a mere result of the activity of demagogues. Now, I'm not arguing we're in a revolutionary um, period, but that's a dynamic that I think we have to understand. And that process cannot, as Rosa Luxemburg and other socialists put it, be set simply by picking a date on the calendar. It cannot be dictated by an organization, and it cannot be called forth by a particular set of tactics, no matter how brilliant or creative. 
So in many ways, we are dependent on the spontaneous but indispensable intervention of working class self-activity. That is the key for us. But many radicals today, I think, look at these episodic struggles with frustration, seeing just a vicious cycle of protests, followed by retreat, followed by more protests, um, and a question of like, well, where are we getting with these, right? Like, I, like okay, the airport protests, but Trump's still getting away with the travel ban. The Supreme Court just upheld it. You know, we have protests at abortion clinics. Okay, um, how do we go through that? And so, but I, I think... And so there's a frustration that's real and understandable, but there's also a dynamic in which self-activity is starting to find expression in fits and starts, but nonetheless real. And I think there's a dynamic amongst, amongst those who have been waiting for a longer or shorter period um, for struggle to break out. There's an idea that I think there's a impatience with the tempo at which this new left is being reborn. And there's an idea that we need something, call it a strategy, call it a breakthrough, call it a bold idea that can allow the forces of the left to break through, advance the tempo of struggle, and leap over some of the initial phases of the process that is unfolding. Um, and frankly, I think there's a way in which this impatience is incredibly healthy. Um, we live to fight, so we are always looking for the opportunities to fight and have a breakthrough, but there's problems with it too. And I think that if we don't have a sense of where we're at, then we don't know how to get to this next step of where we need to go. Um, and so I want to say a little bit about what I think the problems are. First, you can't really have strategy in the real sense without forces. Um, like, you cannot implement any kind of strategy unless you have the forces to implement that. Um, and our side is starting to gain ground, but our, voice, our forces are exceedingly small and weak. The unions have been in decline um, for decades, and with the Janus decision, they're about to take a much bigger hit. Um, socialist influence within the unions um, is incredibly low, um, and ties to the Democratic Party, which historically has held back unions, um, remains very strong. Um, the DSA, as I said earlier, has experienced spectacular growth, but it's still small compared to the scale of what's needed, and its active membership um, smaller than the growth on paper. And what's more, socialism has been popularized by Sanders and has, in some real ways, um, as many of the left talk about, been revived through the ballot box. But it's also constrained by that same phenomenon. Um, it's constrained by being imprisoned within a democratic party that historically has been a graveyard for social movements and does not offer us a chance to put forward our independent views and independent expression. Um, and the revolutionary left, measured by revolutionary organizations, but also the emergence of new independent socialist formations, has had its greatest gain in years, but still remains incredibly small. And so the problem is very real because strategy without forces, I would argue, lead to two potential dangers. One is the danger of substitutionism, and I'm going to explain this term. Um, substitutionism being the idea that a small minority of people can substitute um, themselves for a larger group of people in order to spark or initiate um, or propel activity forward. That if there's just sort of you know, that 10 socialists or 20 socialists or a group of radicals can call a demonstration um, and can have a breakthrough. Now, you have to say that in the last two years, there have been people who've thrown up a Facebook event and had thousands of people show up to their protests. So there is an element in which you can try that. That's, that's fine. Um, but as a strategy, um, that is not a way that builds our side's confidence, combativity, and consciousness. In fact, it works against um, those very things. Um, 
I think the second danger um, is, and this is going to sound like a really nasty word from like the old socialist movement 100 years ago, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think it's an important concept. The second danger is something called opportunism, which is the idea that you can make short-term gains if you just sort of downplay your long-term goals and long-term principles um, and sort of constrain that in some kind of way, like the sort of quick fix, quick win. Um, maybe I won't, you know, we're all socialists. We don't have to talk about what socialism is or what the difference is, or maybe I won't talk about the Democratic Party in this con context or the need for revolution or any of those um, kinds of things. And I think those two things um, are incredible dangers, and I think I'm almost out of time, because I was going to talk about some of the strategies I've been put forward, but I don't know that I have time. I'll just quick... No. <laughs> I'm not going to go through some of the strategies I've been put forward. I'm sorry. I'm not going to have time to do it, because um, I'll, I'll just do injustice to them. Um, but I think the idea that there's some kind of route that we can get around the process of rebuilding our for forces makes us impatient and jump over the steps that we need to take. Now, I want to be very clear when I say this, I'm not saying that there are not initiatives that we can take, that socialists can't be more bold, cannot try to take, you know, take on projects, and that there's a, there's a wider left for us to swim in, right? Um, and so there's more that we can do. So, you know, when the family separations are happening at the border, and suddenly that's on the front page of the news, you can call a protest, and that can begin to get people, and that can begin to change the dynamics. Or somehow the demand, you know, after like years and years and months and months of trying to bring together forces against the deportations and the detentions, I mean, you know, our comrades in cities across the country, I know in New York where I am, like ever since Trump got elected, have been trying to figure out how to fight deportations, how to revive an immigrant rights movement, understanding that this is one of the central issues of his campaign, and banging our head up against a brick wall. And then the family separations happen, and suddenly abolish ICE, which I didn't think could be a demand that would take off, is one of the central demands of the movement. That opens up new opportunities for us. That opens up the possibility of direct action at ICE detention centers. That opens up the possibility of marches on the border. That opens up the possibility of re-raising why comprehensive immigration reform, um, which criminalizes sections of the immigrant population while creating a torturous path to legalization for others, is something that we should break out of and that we need a return to mass struggle. Those are all arguments that we can begin to make now that we couldn't have known two months ago that we were going to be in a position to to make. And so we have to be open to those possibilities and those kinds of initiatives. Um, there's also smaller initiatives that we can take. Uh, okay. Um, there's, <laughs> um, there's also smaller initiatives that we can take in local cities and along with other people, whether it's around a workplace, whether it's around housing issues in a city, whether it's a struggle against the right on campus. There's, I mean, you know, people in the discussion can talk about all these different things. Um, however, what I want to argue in my last couple minutes is that I think the single most important thing that we need to be doing right now is building up our forces. Both the forces of the left more broadly and specifically the forces of the revolutionary left. People who have a vision of socialism that goes beyond reforming the system, that goes beyond the next election cycle, that looks to the protests, that looks to the teacher strikes and says that's where our power lies. And imagine if we had a society, not where we could elect some people who could implement some reforms and give us you know, health care and a welfare state, although I will take those, thank you very much. Um, but what about a society in which 
which the teachers who were on strike on West Virginia ran that society. That's the kind of society that we're looking for. And we need to build up the forces of people who are, exist who are committed to that vision. Um, of course, the problem is this can't be done in isolation from struggle and collaboration, but we also don't control the terrain of struggle. There exists between spontaneity and organization and this developing consciousness, a reciprocal relationship, and all aspects of them must be grasped in their totality. And there's a story um, that uh, Anthony, who's in the Chicago Teachers Union, who I see in the audience as well, pretty all people out in the audience, um, told yesterday that I thought was really important. He talked about how in the wake of Ferguson, activists in the teachers union tried to get the union to take up Black Lives Matter and failed. Not because they made bad arguments, I bet they made great arguments, um, but because the movement wasn't there to make that happen. As the Black Lives Matter movement developed, what was it, a year later or two years later, the question was re-raised and the CTU was part of some of the most important Black Lives Matter protests in the city. It was both important that that wider movement had developed to make that possible and that there had been revolutionaries and socialists organizing inside the union for the long haul who could make those arguments in that context and break that through. So both of those aspects need to be um, understood together. I just need two moments. Um, and so, you know, there's a dynamic of the relationship between the economic and the political that was described by Rosa Luxemburg in a great pamphlet called The Mass Strike, where she says, the economic struggle is the transmitter from one political center to another. The political struggle is the periodic fertilization of the soil for the economic struggle. And I think that you can think about the last several years as the fertilization of the soil um, for the economic struggle, and that those two things can feed one another. And she describes how struggle gives way to new organizing initiatives um, and gives way to the feverish work of organization. Um, and again, she makes the point um, that the most precious lasting thing in the rapid ebb and flow of the wave is its mental sediment, the intellectual cultural growth of the proletariat which proceeds by fits and starts. This feverish work of organization is crucial. In our impatience for more, we can fail to take the steps that are right in front of us. And we can't always predict where those opportunities will arise. And so we need to build organization that can do multiple things simultaneously. Read and educate itself and those around them. Provide a political home for those coming into activity and keep as many people as possible who come out from drifting back into passivity because that is the pull of our society. And try to make arguments and cohere a layer of people. Out of a whole series of smaller battles, elements of leadership begin to form, different politics begin to emerge, um, and certain tactics, symbols, and themes begin to develop that assume resonance. Connections are formed and sometimes lost, but then reemerge as struggle begins to develop at a sharper level. At the most basic level, there are individuals who develop some experience and politics who learn lessons from them and are able to give a lead to those around us. Um, and I think that at the same time, in a bigger sense, we have to understand that the upheavals we're witnessing today are shaped by the context of the last 35 years. These were years in which the working class was in retreat, the level of class struggle was low, and we saw more defeats than victories. I think that is beginning to change, but the balance of forces still remains stacked against us, um, and there is both a resistance but Trump is plowing through, right? He has an agenda, and there are important elements on which he's winning that. We have been able to push him back um, with our resistance at 
key moments. That intervention of masses of people has been decisive, but the deeper work of building a left-wing alternative that can be an alternative to the right-wing demagoguery, but also can be an alternative to the status quo that we cannot go back to. Because the status quo was intolerable and is what got us to this situation, um, and a return to it cannot be the answer. And we need to be the people who are in every struggle, at every protest, but also the people having meetings and having study groups and going out and talking to people and say that there's a different way that is not the right, it is not the status quo, but that there's a left-wing alternative based on the on the ordinary activity of working class people fighting on behalf of themselves for their own futures and their own destinies. And we're not there yet. Right now, the stage of the radicalization is an idea that we can vote for something that maybe will give us something. We can come out and protest and then remember in November. And so we're not quite at the point where people feel their power yet, but they're beginning to feel their power. And what we have to do is build organizations that are based um, on the possibility of that power, the inevitability of that power emerging, um, but also the need for organizations that can match it as it does begin to rise um, and actually fuse itself with that so that we can have a whole different kind of alternative to the society we live in because the stakes have never been higher when you pose the question socialism or barbarism. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.